0: Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stands side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome. To the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them, both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So this is season two. We've gotten ourselves a new logo, though. If you're listening to this through various services like Spotify, you won't know because I Can't figure out how to change the logo on those services. If any of you have any experience with that, please let me know because I haven't been able to figure it out. Uh, We're also up to six patrons on Patreon and considering various extra things to post there other than just the early postings of the podcast. We've also done our first interview and we certainly hope to do more. If any of you would like to be interviewed, then please do contact us. Other than that, well, I'm just ready to get on with season two, especially since this is the second time we're recording. The last time I messed up, so fingers crossed that we're getting things done the right way this time. Um, Peter, have you been up to anything interesting?
1: Well, speaking of of getting things right, uh, we we actually uh, got an email uh, from one of our listeners, uh, who who also happened to be my girlfriend, so so we have to take care of this. and it's uh, it's it's a correction from uh, the episode we did on Transylvania by Night when um, when when we talked about the the character uh, infesting the land and and spreading through the land uh, kind of the, the the vampire and the land being the same uh, and I, um, I I did a comparison to. Uh, to, to fungus uh, spreading uh, like uh, sp- spreading in, in the kind of the same way with the um, and and we said it was uh, we we used spores uh, to to uh, as the equivalent of, of how uh, fungi spread but it's uh, the the correct word is is uh, mycelium which is kind of the, the thread like uh, roots if you will. Um, my girlfriend is, is a biologist, I'm not, uh, <laughs> so uh, hopefully this will, uh, this will satisfy her. So, so spores are yeah, they're kind of the airborne stuff that gets around, but the, the thing that's actually uh, infesting the soil uh, is, is mycelium. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's just, just making sure that, that we got it out. Uh, and as, as an encouragement to our listeners... Uh, who aren't our partners? Uh, if if you do feel uh, like we need to make corrections, please contact us because we we want to improve uh, both on our knowledge on stuff and on the quality of the show. Uh, so so if you uh, if you hear something that that you think is wrong, please contact us and and we'll make sure to sh- check it out and. Uh, and we'll we'll uh, do a correction uh, in, in the next recorded episode, so to speak.
0: Yeah, exactly. I remember when uh, we were doing the um, Iberia by Night episode, as mm. we mentioned before we did that, one of our listeners who happened to be from Spain contacted us and gave us a lot of information that we didn't have. And that was just so cool because, I mean, we know stuff and we do some research, but your girlfriend is a biology expert i mean if we were doing anything with geology i'd be talking to my wife who is a geologist yeah so um yeah definitely i mean we have a community out there we have some people with some rather specialized knowledges and we'd love to hear from you if you have anything that you you think could be interesting or if you have any corrections but yeah things over here in denmark gray rainy but hopefully if nothing else changes on Monday I am going to go on my yearly trip to the Christmas market in Lübeck. We didn't go last year for obvious reasons, mm. so hopefully we're we're going to be doing it this year. It seems like as long as we're wearing masks and we've been vaccinated, it shouldn't be a problem. So that's nice anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's well we we actually had a tiny bit of snow and and for the last couple of nights we've had frost. So looking out through my uh, through my window, I—it's—it's actually—it's—it's it's white because of the early morning frost and not because of snow. But it's—it's it's really cold. Uh, so yeah, win, winter is definitely coming. Uh, we we are just gonna see how long it stays or if it's gonna do a back and forth like it usually does.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, obviously. The book we're going to be looking at today is the Dark Ages Vampire core book. In fact, we've divided it into three parts, so today we're looking at the prelude, the intro, and the first three chapters. Basically, the part of the book that establishes the setting, the clans, and the roads. And speaking of the setting, this updates from 1197 when the first book was set and obviously we then went through various dates with some of the books that were published for the first edition. Now it's updated to the year 1230. And what's going on in 1230, Peter?
1: There's a lot of things going on uh, in in Europe and and since the game is set in uh, medieval Europe, that's that's the area I'm going to focus on. Uh, But yeah, starting off uh, with... (laughs) It's going to be a lot of religions and wars, uh, just <laughs>
0: because that's isn't that's, it always.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, uh, in at least in some ways. But um, uh, the Teutonic Knights that have been a subject uh, for the podcast and and the game setting, uh, they uh, they they got basically permission from, uh, uh, and oh, I apologize, I can't remember if it was the, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II or. From the Pope, or perhaps both, but basically, they got a charter to uh, to basically Christianize the, the pagans of uh, of northeast Eastern Europe, so so Prussia and and the Lithuanians and, and kind of that area, uh, and they they did it really well because they and we mentioned it in previous episodes that they they were basically private
0: military contractors
1: who started their own country.
0: Um, yeah, which is yeah they, they managed to take over quite a bit of land.
1: Yeah, and, and it wasn't like, yeah we, we controlled this land for the emperor or the Pope or whoever. They were a private enterprise, uh, a holy order who, who ruled their own country. Uh, and they had like um, they, they had people under them who, who uh, swore fe- fealty to them. Uh, so that's kind of interesting because it's it's very different from the kind of nation-state way of thinking that we have today. Uh, it wasn't always like that, uh, and depending on what kind of cyberpunk dystopian future you're uh, wishing for, uh, it's it it might be something similar like that, but with mega corporations. Uh, those of you who have read Neuromancer, for example, for will will kind of recognize that. Um, but on a, uh, on a more cultural note, uh, we have the Carmina Burana being written. And Carmina Burana is uh, probably most famous through the works of, of Karl Orff. Uh, because uh, uh, what they were, uh, or are rather, was a bunch of uh, both secular, uh, secular and, and rather bawdy, but, but also... Um, uh, religious songs being written down in uh, in Burana, which is uh, a clo- uh, a cloister or a monastery—I can't remember actually—but uh, they they cover a large uh, variety of topics, from from just basically drinking songs to religious songs to to uh, nuns and monks being naughty with each other, uh, and <laughs> they they were kind of not lost but tucked away uh, until uh, the early 19th century when they were found and then uh, rediscovered and then later on Carl uh, Orff uh, set them to music and and the most famous one is is uh, Fortuna which has been featured in oh so many movies uh, yes
0: yeah it's probably worth mentioning that the music that Carl Orff set the Carmina Burana to while undoubtedly very, very cool, very epic, Uh, is nothing like it would have sounded uh, back then. It is, the Camina Burana, one of the most important discoveries when it comes to medieval music. And if you want to get an idea of, of how it might have sounded, how something closer to uh, to how it would have sounded back then um there is a band called Corvus Korax and one of yeah. their members is actually a muse- musical historian and they did I think it's called Cantus Burana or something yeah. like that but they did a performance of the Kamina Burana where you have them trying to make it sound more like it would in in the middle ages and there are various bands who have taken various songs from the Kamina Burana and tried to do a more medieval rendition of them. For some strange reason, a song called "In Taberna" is very, very popular <laughs> among bands. So um, well, it's it's a drinking
1: song. So yeah, of course, yeah. it's gonna be uh, <laughs> it's gonna be popular. Uh, but but yeah, that's um, that's one of the things going on. Another thing uh, going on is that the sixth uh, sixth crusade ended, uh, and that's that's an interesting one because. Uh, that, that basically shows that the, the kind of traditional way of thinking that the Crusades were always the Christians against uh, the the Muslims is is kind of wrong because uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's going to be a long episode anyway. But basically, <laughs> it was it, it was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II who he he basically broke the deal with uh, the with one of the Muslim rulers. Uh, Basically saying that, uh, that yeah, we can have access to, to the Holy Land for a certain number of years uh, in exchange for not actually fighting uh, you, the Muslim ruler, because he was busy fighting, uh, I think it was his cousins actually, but it, it was an oh, yeah, infighting between th- the... The Abbasids and the Ayyubids.
0: Um. It was an infighting in the Ayyubid dynasty between oh, yeah. the Syrian and the Egyptian branch, it, yeah. um, which is basically that, that infighting was the reason why the Crusader states still existed because the Muslims were more interested in fighting each other than taking out the Christians. Yeah. Which I think is is a rather interesting note.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and again, it shows that that there is always you you have the classical kind of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Kind of situation, and and Frederick II actually got into trouble with the Pope because he was like, not like I'm gonna go and fight the Muslims, but you don't actually fight them, so come on, do do something, and and he was like, well, I I secured the Holy Land, yeah, but you didn't actually fight them, and like, <laughs> yeah, okay, so it, yeah. so it was a bit of a back and forth between it. Another place that is, is in the middle of a huge back and forth uh, is, is England and Wales because uh, at this time uh, England uh, was for, for obvious reasons smaller or rather different than it is today because you still had uh, Wales and Scotland being and Ireland as well being independent countries and hadn't really been conquered by England yet. Uh, so you, you had a bunch of, of conflicts, um, which led to... Um, uh, you, you had uh, what was called the, the marcher lords, uh, which uh, they, they had been uh, given the assignment by the kings of England to control the, uh, the borderlands between uh, England and Wales, which were called the marchers. Uh, <coughs> and, and if you want intrigue worthy of, of Game of Thrones... Um, one of them actually died in the year 1230, and his name was William de uh, Brose, Brace, I, I can't really pronounce it, uh, B-R-A-O-S-E. Um, and, and he was a martial lord, and he was fighting against the, uh, the Welsh ruler uh, Llewelyn, um, and he was actually captured by Llewelyn, and then he, he kind of broke the deal with him uh, again, to kind of make peace between uh, the two areas, so that uh, their children uh, would marry each other. Uh, mm. But then, then William, uh, he slept with Llewelyn's wife. Uh, <laughs> was, according to the stories, caught in the act uh, oh, and, dear. and hanged by Llewelyn, as kind of uh, for obvious reasons. But the interesting thing, the really interesting political thing, is that their children still married. Uh, uh-huh. Because politics, and and that feels like a really vamp- vampiric thing to do, or, or like yeah. if you want to, the sneaky backstabby, uh, but still kind of well, we, we did have a deal, so I'm still gonna I'm still gonna honor <laughs> that deal, but I'm gonna hang yeah. you for sleeping with my mo- wife.
0: I'm just thinking how much historical problems could have been avoided through polyamory. Mm-hmm. Also, the um, the whole uh, conflict was when the English were introduced to the Welsh longbow uh, point first and uh, f- figured out just how effective it was, and then they adopted it, and it became what is known as the English longbow, the warbow, that then went on to do some serious damage on the continent during the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. This is where they learned the power of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and up here in, in our part of the world, uh, we have, uh, in, in Sweden, the the uh, King de Jour, we actually have two kings uh, that kind of switch between each other, and it's uh, one is called uh, Eric the Lisp and the Lame because apparently he had a Lisp <laughs> and and, uh, he uh, and he was lame, and he was dethroned by Knut the Tall um, for for a few years, uh, and then in 1234 Knut died, and and Eric came back. Uh, there is also some. Um, it's not really clear if they kind of co-ruled or or if Knut actually took over, and because the the historical records uh, aren't very obvious. Uh, what is interesting though is that uh, or, or what what rest- uh, historical records we do have is the so-called Eric Chronicle, which details. It's written about a hundred years later, so it's not it's not like an eyewitness account necessarily, but it, it details. Uh, the the life of amongst other uh, Eric Eric de Lisbon, de lame, uh, the Lisbon Uh lame and one amongst the things he does uh, a bit later on not in 1230 I think it was in 1239 is that he goes on a crusade to Finland um, to uh, to Christianize the the Finnish pagans. Um, and, and this was at the same time when when Finland was conquered by by Sweden, so it became a part of the, the Swedish Kingdom for until uh, 1809 when when the Russians uh, took it. Uh, but what's interesting is that the way the the crusade is described in this chronicle, uh, it's it's basically like a, a huge Viking raid because it <laughs> it, it describes how the um, how the fighting men in their gleaming helmets uh, want to try out their sharp swords against the uh, the Tavastians, which uh, Tavastia is uh, is an area or uh, region in Finland, which isn't close to the coast. So you have to like <laughs> if if you want to do a crusade, you have to land on the coast and then go quite a bit to uh, quite far to actually come to uh, to Tavastia. Uh, but yeah, they, it, it says that the the fighting men wanted to do, to uh, try their swords, their sharp swords, against the, the pagans, uh, and then they brought back a, a huge bounty of uh, of gold and uh, and cattle. Uh, so apparently, it's, it it was still a thing that you you looted and you, you brought things. But again, it shows that that um, the crusades, at least in this part of the the country, uh, wasn't really uh, what wasn't really that different from the kind of raids that the Vikings did a couple of centuries earlier. Um, so, so that's I, I always find it interesting when when things live on. Um, and, yeah. And and speaking of of the Finns, uh, in in 1229, uh, the Finns proper uh, they they kind of rose up against the idea that their land should be Christian, uh, and they they fought against. Basically, you're saying that well, we've we've reverted back to our old faith, and and we're gonna do a reverse crusade, I guess. Uh, and, <laughs> and and a really interesting thing is that Pope Gregory the Ninth, he uh, actually condemned uh, the island of Gotland for uh, for supplying the, the Finns proper. Who Finns proper is an ethnic group in Finland, um, mm. and uh, he he condemned uh, the island of Gotland for for basically selling them uh, horses and weapons and and other supplies which again shows that the whole christianity versus non-christians uh, isn't really that clear-cut because the island of gotland is is very christian uh, and since it's um uh, it's um uh, it has very good uh, it's a rocky island so it it has very good stones so they built a lot of churches uh, on the island uh, for for centuries, so it's uh, it's it's among the most uh, heavily uh, or, or densely populated by churches area in in Sweden.
0: Um, yeah, but you know when you have capitalism versus uh, religion, <laughs> yeah. capitalism tends to win. Mm. And of course, Gotland at this point was just inundated not only with churches but also with merchants because yeah. all of the merchants from northern Germany would meet on Gotland. Yeah. Before moving on to uh, to other places, so it, it was a yeah, a very um, money centric uh, person place from,
1: from Germany, but from uh, from Novgorod and and the, the Eastern Baltic Sea as well. So yeah, yeah exactly. it was it was merchant merchant city basically.
0: Yeah, so a uh, lot of interesting places and interesting things going on that uh, that people can get their uh, their teeth into, mm. if you will pardon the pun. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It is, it is an interesting, it is an interesting period. So, the core book is written by Bruce Ball, Michael Butler, Chris Hartford, Steve Kenson, James Keely, Joshua Mosquera-Ashheim, and Adam Tinworth. With additional material by Justin Akeely, Philip Bull, Miranda Callis, Sarah Rourke, Lucian Solban, C.A. Slayman, and Mane L. Vagno, developed by Philip R. Bull. Whew, um, it's a core book, lots of people involved. Yeah. As always, we start with the beginning with the cover which continues the theme of being pretty simple. We have a mottled sort of um, marble like black background, the title and a rosary with an Ankh. I really like it. I think I might prefer the first edition font over the new one but other than that I think this cover is more colorful and vibrant. and. Although the Ankh rosary is pure fantasy, I like the look of it. So I think this cover actually beats the first edition cover, and I think it looks really great.
1: Yeah, I I agree with it. Uh, I I can overlook the um, non-historical rosary, uh, but it it looks cool, so it it works. I I do like the uh, color combinations. Fun fact, uh, rosaries at this point in time didn't necessarily have a cross or a crucifix uh, attached to them. So you just had uh, the beads, which uh, symbolize different prayers. If it's, uh, I think it's Ave Maria and the Paternoster prayers. So you would, mm. uh, if, if you've seen some movies, you can actually see uh, Catholics uh, kind of like counting the uh, the... The beads between their fingers, um, and and that sim- kind of symbolizes them doing uh, one prayer for each bead. Uh, and and again, it kind of shows that like if you take away the crucifix or, or the cross from a, a rosary, uh, it's not uh, too unsimilar to prayer beads that you have in other religions. Uh, yeah. So so again, it's uh, things aren't that different actually.
0: No. Now the interior art in this first part is, well, in my opinion, disappointing. I like the woodcut-looking art in the intro story, and some of the smaller pieces aren't bad, while others are just meh. However, the clan pictures that accompany each clan are, in general, a huge disappointment. The Brugia one is especially bad, with a weird staff, a push-up bra, fur booties, and a knife strapped to the forearm. But other than the Ventrue one, I don't think any of them look really good. There are just a few that aren't aren't straight-up bad. And I don't understand the fascination with giving characters weird cookery-like knives. You got two of those. Uh, the character pictures for the roads are a lot better in my mm. opinion, but I just don't think they're enough to save the art from getting a poor grade for me. Uh, what did you think of it?
1: Yeah, the well, the, the brucek uh, portrait or, or picture would make an excellent monk in D and D, but <laughs> I, I completely <laughs> agree with you that that it's it's a too much of a fascination. I, I did like the look of uh, the the Tsimichi uh, w- which has a kind of weird alien uh, face to it but but the rest of him is or them probably uh, <laughs> looks really weird and and they have a really weird sword that probably would break quite easily in in real life uh, so so yeah that's a bit of a disappointment um, the the kind of wood uh, wood cutting um, uh, that that illustrates the the intro story uh is is really cool but it's it's a few hundred years uh to or it's it's from a later date uh mm. a few hundred uh, years later uh, which is a shame because there is a lot of uh, really good source materials for uh for uh, for 13th century, early 13th century artwork, you have the Codis Maness, you have the Morgan Bible, uh, mm. and and you have... There is an illustrated version of the Carmina Burana, which I think should date to around this time period. So uh, I, I can see why a modern person would think that some of the fashion of the early 13th century would be kind of boring, because uh, a lot of it, or not, not, some of it at least, is... These kind of uh, loose, flowy robes and gowns, which doesn't really leave that much to to like um, decorations and details. So if if you're not into that sort of thing, uh, I can see why you, you'd rather have uh, the more complicated uh, and, and more tailored uh, fashion from from later centuries. But again, we we do have source material from this period, and I think it looks cool. So. I would have preferred that they used it. I, I think it's cool that they um, they actually ha- have a very kind of distinct medieval style to the wood carving artwork. But again, it's it's too late for for the uh, the time that that this
0: uh,
1: game is set. So yeah, I don't know. Mm. It it gets a pass, but not nothing more than that as a grade for me. I think.
0: Yeah, the uh, front inside does have a map. Uh, which I think is a perfectly usable map. It's a map of Europe and the Near East, including North Africa. And yeah, it, it gives you an idea of what's what and what's where. So, and nicely enough, they've they've remembered to give what a day Southern Sweden to Denmark, yes. <laughs> which is not always the case. But yeah, it's it's a really, I think, good map for just giving you an idea of, of what's going on. And then obviously you can, do your own uh, research if you really want to know where every city is and every river and stuff like that. So, so the map, yeah, that was a, a good addition. Um, the first thing we start with is an intro story called "A Sacrament of Cain." Now, as listeners of this. Podcast, Well, no I'm usually don't care for intro stories, and it's told by Anatole, an NPC that I really don't like because of Transylvania Chronicles. But I think this is a really good intro story that gives a quick intro to the most common take on Cainite history, which is the uh, Christ- uh, Judeo-Christian take on it, or the Abrahamic, I should say, mm. take on it. Um, <clears throat> I could see myself using this as a way to show <clears throat> how much your common vampire knows about their history. So yeah, I thought this was really good. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good as well. I, I
1: actually kind of do like Anatole because of of his kind of epic troll levels that that he comes up with. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree that it's uh, it's actually useful. And as you mentioned, you could probably use this uh, in in a game uh, to to kind of tell uh, players that like yeah, well this is this is the creation from from a vampiric or a canine point of view, um, and I uh, yeah I, I liked it. It it wasn't um, they w- one thing I really liked that didn't actually have anything to do with the story, but but rather with uh, with the layout is that they use a different font from uh, the one that they've used in the in the first edition when they do this oh, kind yes. of introductory story. So you can actually read what it says. Uh, <laughs> Which, which is, is I, yeah, that's a really big plus um, in, in my book. So, uh, but yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a nice little story. Uh, it's actually quite long, but it's um, uh, it's a good introduction, um, and yeah. I, I like the perspective that it's from an actual character as well.
0: Mm. next is the intro and it's pretty short and sweet gives a good short intro to the setting and the game with more in-depth explanations to come it does show its age by having a much larger book section than internet section in the resources part but i mean that's to be expected i, I don't really have much to add here it's just an intro pretty short for a core book and that's it
1: yeah i i agree it's at, at some point i'm gonna actually check some of the um... Uh, the websites that they recommend and see if any of them are actually still up.
0: Yeah. Uh, so before we get to chapter one, it should be mentioned that between each chapter is a little one-page vignette story focusing on one of the signature characters that represent each clan. And uh, they don't really do anything for me. I don't know if if you have any comment about them, Peter. Uh,
1: no, I like I I don't have anything against them. But if it's if it's not a character that you care about then they don't really tell you that much um, They they did have one the, the first one is um, uh, about uh lucita of, of aragon uh, and it it kind of shows the uh an interesting side of the la sombra that they they have their whole um their, their whole uh, clan versus uh, mortal uh, affiliation thing going on, and and that they're scheming bastards. But other than that, it's like, <laughs> yeah, they're okay.
0: They're not mm, yeah. bad. So no. So chapter one is a beast of a chapter with a ton of information we start with a page uh, and a half of information about the dark medieval setting explaining that it is our middle ages specifically as we mentioned the year 1230 plus the supernatural as per usual this is a good intro but that is all we get no explanation about nations society or or anything we get a tiny bit more in Chapter 8, but combined, this is really not a lot. i sure you have the previous books, and the second source book for the line is Dark Ages Europe. But still, I think they should have given us more information. Not everyone will have a lot of knowledge about the Middle Ages. And when you buy a book, you really don't expect to have to do a majority of the research yourself. So this was actually a major disappointment for me.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And it's. Um, I, I feel that it would... It would benefit if they kind of gave a uh, an example city of like that you could just put down anywhere yeah. in in any country uh, just just so that you would uh, you would have a place to play. Uh, but I, I agree that the the information we get, especially since a lot of it is is repeated in more detail later on, uh, and that's that's actually one of my biggest gripes with the introduction, or, or this chapter, that um, you, you do get kind of like a, a brief overview of, of all things. Uh, and and some of it is, is really cool because you, they talk about um, the the Trinity of Cain, for example, the Dark fa- Father, the Wanderer, the Dark Tyrant, and they talk about the Book of Nod, and they talk about um, the embrace and, and what happens to your human body when you get embraced. And a lot of that is is really really cool, uh, and it also shows since it's also supposed to be kind of written from a canite point of view, uh, it shows really what, what dramatic SOBs uh, the the vampires can be <laughs> that that they talk about uh, dying the endless death and the uh, um, the curse of Cain and and uh, the the hunger and things like that uh, and 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 it like. Come on, that's that's something that that an emo kid would write in their uh, like uh, notebook in in high school. But again, it's it's Vampire the Masquerade. It's from the early two um, thousands. It's it's supposed to be like that. Uh, but what I what I really dislike about the way that this entire chapter is laid out is that you you do. Uh, you, you get a bit of information on a lot of things at first which I think is is a good you get the information about the different generations the disciplines uh, how uh, kx look on themselves uh, and then on clans and politics uh, and and then they go into even more they go deeper into to the politics and and kind yeah. of stuff about uh, like, how, how things are organized in, in vampiric society. Uh, and, and I feel that from a player perspective, like, if, if I've been reading this cool intro story about uh, how, how vampires are made and we're the dark children of the night and everything, and then you get just a bit about the, uh, about the, the clans, which are the, the thing that you're going to play... And then you get basically an essay on 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 social sciences uh, in in the canine society, and it's like, no, I I just read that part. I want to read about the cool clans and the cool powers and and like if I want to play a, this kind of character, which clan should I be? So so it, it, I don't know. It I kind of lost interest when when reading this. Like it, it was just getting through stuff to get to the things that I really wanted to and of course you can just jump back and forth between the pages but again from a player perspective it's it it could use some editing and changing of the layout I think
0: yeah Um, so the rest of the chapter is as you mentioned dedicated to explaining vampires their reality and their society and I think this is really good stuff. I agree with you that perhaps this should have uh, the, the the heaviest of the stuff, the the in-depth stuff should have come later. Uh, but what there is is very, very good, and there is a lot of information. But there's also enough mystery for you to insert your own ideas, yeah. and to, you can have players read this, and then you can still surprise them. If if a player has read this, there will still be things that that they don't know. Uh, unless of course they've read other books but a newbie player there will be things that they don't know so their uh, character won't know them and you can you can spring surprises i like how they've put even more emphasis emphasis on kane and how a lot of vampires actually worship and pray to him and i love the in-depth and graphic description of how the embrace feels so right up to society of the night um there's very uh, little new information if you've read the previous books, but I think the information you get is presented very, very well.
1: Yeah, I, I agree uh, that like if if you haven't played the previous edition, if you're a completely new player, then then it's it's a really good chapter. Except that a part of it should perhaps even be its own chapter. I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really, really, uh, really big. A lot of information, mm-hmm. but it's it's. <laughs> I mean, it, it's necessary. Um, and then we move on to Society of the Night, and I think this is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time because there is a big change here, namely high and low clans as well as the way roads are handled and the concept of the War of Princes. Yeah. Now, if we start with high and low clans, the idea is that in Christian Europe, the clans are divided with the Brugia, Cappadocian, La Sombra, Toreador, and Ventru considered high clans and the other low clans. They portray this as having risen alongside feudalism, though that obviously retcons the way Canite society was portrayed in the last edition. It's part of what seems to be an effort to make canite society mirror mortal society, which becomes even clearer with the roads and the domains of the War of Princes. So let me get your take on this high-low clans, and I'll see how it matches with my opinions on well, it.
1: Well, I, I agree that it's a bit weird that they change it so that it's supposed to follow the rise of feudalism because you've you've had the establishment of the high and low clans even before like like back in uh, in in Roman times and ancient Greece and and more or less even before that um, and especially since the uh, they they've been talking about how uh, Brugia are kind of um, they, which are a high clan, but then they 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 started kind of the shift from for Bruja, for example, from the from how they used to be to how they will be in in modern nights, which is more of the, uh, <laughs> the this almost stereotypical anarchist punk rockers, uh, <laughs> fuck the system kind of kind of guys and girls and others, uh, but. In in this setting, they're supposed to be like more the more the warrior philosophers with with lofty ideals and uh, and and goals and everything like that, and it's it's kind of weird because the, the feudal system of Europe isn't really that old uh, at this point in time, at least not from a vampiric uh, point of view. Yeah. So having them be like, yeah, we used to be uh, a really noble high clan and like, what, when you mean like just a couple of centuries, that's that's like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but we really used to be, and now we're kind of falling. But but yeah, there was. Come on, it it hasn't been that long. Stop being so dramatic. Uh, so so that doesn't really make sense. Um, and I think you wanted to talk about the Cappadocians as well, don't you?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's kind of interesting because the Cappadocians they're they're put among the high clans. Um, And it's like, well, they're scholars and, you know, they they are... good advisors and they're very christian which is nice uh, there's uh, this whole idea about um Assamites not being high clan because they're they're outsiders who are not christian in their own lands they would be high clans and it's um, it's kind of weird because i would have preferred a bit more granularity i mean in in mortal society you have the three pillars which we've talked about you have the nobles those who war you have the um peasants those who toil and then you have the clergy those who pray and i think if they done this whole high-low clans a bit more granular, then the Cappadocians would have ended up in the in the middle tier. Uh, the mm. Brugia might, as, might also, because they've been, you know like you said, they, they've been reduced from their status where they were once philosopher kings, they no longer are. Whereas they mentioned that the Malkavians, they were definitely one of the top tier clans uh, in Rome because they were allied with the, the leaders and they helped guide Rome uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. And, and help them when they fought against the um, the Carthaginians. Yeah. And also it makes it a bit weird that the Tsimish are considered a high clan. Yes, they are the ruling clans in the East. but um, they're not Christians and they they seem rather outsiderish. So they're yeah, I, I can see some good ideas in this, but I think that that there there's more, I don't know if I should call it bad but there's just more that that doesn't really feel right with me I can certainly run with it and I can see some interesting things with it but I would have preferred a more a granular structure more and and more explanation it seems like they're making a lot of excuses as to why it's this way rather than trying to explain how the high clans managed to take this position and why the low clans accept being called low clans
1: yeah that's that's kind of the other thing because uh, at the same time the or or speaking of the cappadocians because they're they're on their way down and out in in more ways than the bruja are Uh, so so it's kind of i i can kind of see the point that that they are still clinging to the to their old status and that it's gonna be a tragedy when they spoiler alerts get eaten by the Giovanni <laughs> uh, but but at the same time it, it kind of feels weird it, it it's it feels like they they got stuck uh, in the in the high clans just because and and as you say they, they kind of struggle uh, for uh, to struggle to justify it afterwards so so yeah it's it, it's a bit weird uh.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it—it's—it—it it, it just seems like they—they they had this idea, but they weren't quite clear on how to uh, to implement it, um, and and so it comes as as a bit clunky, yeah, in the way that it's introduced. Um, so anyway. Following the presentation of high and low clans, we look at princes, possible positions, under princes, the traditions, and the various types of punishments that can be doled out from princes of domains. Now They've already talked about the hierarchy of the damned when they talked about high and low clans, and afterwards we move into what they call the nocturnal nobility. So it gets a bit muddled and confusing Mm. as to who holds what positions and what the different positions really mean. And it also seems like more than half of all vampires could end up with some sort of title. Uh, And as you mentioned, it it gets a bit repetitive. They repeat information uh, a a lot in this book. Uh, But I do really like this section since I prefer games that take place in a defined domain. And this really gives you ideas on how to run a city and set up rules Uh, set up the prince's court, etc. However, I personally think that they take it a bit too far with feudal oaths of fealty, apparently being extremely common among among vampires. I can see how it works in the medieval setting, but I would prefer if it was only something younger canines were into, and actually mainly those following roads like uh, road of kings and road of humanity mm. so they were mirroring the mortal society they know and older vampires preferring the older ways and looking at all these oaths of fealty as well that's something the younger vampires are into they'll grow out of it yeah
1: exactly and and it's it's a great way of showing if if you want to kind of show the the difference between younger and, and older vampires uh where where a young vampire would be like well i you have to swear this oath to me and and that's gonna bond you for the rest of your own life and and an older cane gonna like yeah sure why not I, I I can do the thing you want I'm not gonna care about it but if if it's important to you then sure let's let's pretend uh, and then they can get really upset when they, the older vampire kind breaks their, their their oath of fealty because reasons
0: uh, yeah Um. And then we have a short section on roads and sects. Mm. Uh, the roads will be covered in greater detail in chapter three, so I think we can skip them for yeah. now, though I'll note that there are some big changes here. Mm. With sects, we get brief notes on the usual suspects like the Furores, Prometheans, and Cainite Heresy, as well as the Inconnu and the Order of the Bitter Ashes, which we covered in the Ashen Night book. Yeah. Personally, I could do without the last one. I think they're a bit too high fantasy for a Dark Ages game. Yeah,
1: they are. Like they, I can see them working if if that's the kind of game you want to set. But but yeah, like yeah, you you said it best that they're a bit too high fantasy for for the kind of dark and gothic uh, feel that is supposed to um,
0: to be portrayed in, in the world of darkness. Mm. So uh, after this, we have an in-character section presented as a letter from the Cappadocian Constantia to the Tzimish Drakon, giving more information on Canite history and society. And I think this was really good, really in keeping with the rest of the chapter, presenting a lot of useful information in a tight and usable way. And again, something where you can basically point to that and say, this is what your character knows. Yeah, uh,
1: I'm... Since I, I actually studied Latin in high school, and <laughs> I, I need to, uh, I, I, I need to make my my teacher proud because, uh, or at least try to, because she was a very good teacher. Uh, there are two things that I would like to point out. Uh, the first of them is that the word Colosseum or Colosseum is misspelled at some point, at at one point, <laughs> and, and and the second is that they they talk about Carthage and. For those who don't know about the the uh the wars between the the, the Punic wars between um Rome and Carthage and between brujan and, and malcavian if if you want to go that kind of uh alternate history route um some of you might still kind of uh recognize the the latin phrase uh uh kenso uh which means basically, uh, oh, by the way, I uh, also think that Carthage uh, should be destroyed or, or is to be destroyed. Um, and, and that is kind of, uh, it, was a, uh, it was a Roman politician called uh, Cato, who uh, he ended basically every speech he did in the Senate, uh, no matter the subject, with just throwing in that line that, oh, by the way, we should kill those and destroy those silly uh, agents that has been that we've been warring with for a few hundred years basically finished <laughs> the job um, but the, um, the 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 phrasing or the the variant they use in this letter is uh, cartago delenda est which uh, is uh, it's, it's kind of a simplified version of the phrase uh, and and it's, you have the difference. The, the difference is between esse Delendam and delenda est. Uh, delenda est is more like uh, it, that it it is to be destroyed or that it must be destroyed, uh, and uh, esse Delendam is is more. Uh, it, it's a more philosophical. I well, not necessarily philosophical, but it's from a grammatical point of view, it's it's a more interesting way of saying it that that. Uh, that it 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 is to be should be destroyed, kind of like a, a more. Uh, uh, I I don't I don't really know how to describe, but it 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 flows better. It's it's better grammar and it's more interesting grammar. <laughs> so I, I recognize the fact that most listeners probably have have switched off by now. But again, I I feel the need <laughs> to to point out the fact that. Uh, this letter which is supposed to be written by uh, a scholarly character i don't know if this character was actually around by the time of of the punic war so he might actually have heard the phrase being uttered in the senate but the fact that that he uses this simplified phrase i feel is is a bit unworthy for for such a scholarly character it's it's kind of like uh, someone quoting Star Wars and saying, "Luke, I am your father," even though that wasn't actually what he, what Darth Vader said, or "Elementary, uh, dear Watson," because Sherlock Holmes never said that, at least not in the uh, author Conan Doyle books. Uh, so yeah, I, I, again, I, having actually studied Latin, I I feel that at some point I have have to <laughs> use my my skills in that, and and this is it. So I'm, yes, that was just a, 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 not a small tangent, but but again, I, I felt like I had to. Uh, but yeah, the, the right. rest of the of, of the in character letter is uh, is fine. I think I, I enjoyed it as well.
0: Uh, and for those listeners who are still hanging on... <laughs> no, sorry. Um, it, it, actually, actually, this reminds me that uh, I'm, I'm really sad I never studied Latin. I should have done that. But anyway, um, moving on. We end with an explanation of the central idea of the second edition, The War of Princes. The very basic idea is that a few Methuselah have either awakened or decided to take a more active role, and that Europe has been carved up into what is basically canite. Quote unquote nations, each with a monarch uh, who rules through various lords and princes. Uh, we have the fiefs of the Black Cross under Hardestadt, the baronies of Avalon under Mithras, the courts of love under Matriarch Saliana, the Sea of Shadows under Montano, and a few minor areas like the Obertus Landlords, the Zemisch Voivodate, the city states of Italy, and the Midnight Crescent, which is not really minor, but it lies outside the area that is focused on, which is obviously Christian Europe. Mm. I am torn about this. It comes somewhat out of nowhere, retconning the previous edition a bit. We saw some seeds being sown in the book Under the Black Cross with Vukos establishing the Obertus landholds, but not enough in my opinion. And we suddenly have a new Methuselah introduced in the form of Matriarch Saliana. We've never heard about before. So that's just sort of, oops, there she is. And it's like, w- what, where, who, when, why? Yeah. It, it, it also seems somewhat limited uh, with what's covered, because we've already established that in Uppsala there's a fourth generation gangrel who calls himself the All-High, um, and having Scandinavia as a nation under a gangrel ruler could have added a nice twist, especially since all the other rulers are uh, either Ventrula, Sombra, or Triadol. Um, so I think this this could have been done, but also this focus on something so big as a war between these canine nations, I think it takes away from what I think is more interesting and in many ways a more plausible um, setting for a game. If they wanted to have this as a vague backdrop, mm-hmm. you know that would yeah. be fine, where where it was something that you heard about. But there's a lot of word count being devoted to the War of Princes. And it makes me wonder how a group of Neonets can get involved. It seems more like a, a setup for a board game and or a computer game. And people have made a mod for Crusader Kings 3 using this War of Princes setup. I haven't played it, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. But it just see, feels too big with with the knights involved being too powerful.
1: Yeah, I I definitely see your point, uh as as for the like the, the three things that i would like to comment on and, and starting with with uh, uh major Saliana, it's like i i don't mind that they throw in a completely new methuselah from from out of nowhere but then make something out of it like show that uh, describe how she rises to power like from from being, I don't know, being in Torpor for a couple of centuries and then like I'm back and then just show her rapid rise to power and and describe how um, how exactly how powerful and terrifying a fifth generation Toriador can be when they've set a goal. Like, okay, I'm going to rule this. I, I'm, I'm going to get my, what's it called? My, my courts of love and I'm going to rule them and, and show her rising to power in just maybe a few decades and, and how terrifyingly powerful she has to be to, to succeed at. Um, as, as for the whole uh, war of princes and generations uh, thing in or nation uh, thing in general, I, I also agree that it's, it, it would be cooler if, or at least from my point of view, because as you say, it, it kind of takes away from the whole Gothic, um, horror kind of feel uh, that that at least I have uh, interpreted Vampire to be about that it's about to be a tiny little individual in, in this huge dark world of darkness uh, so so yeah I, I agree that it could probably be cooler to have it more as a background setting that, that especially for the neonate players that yeah this is something that goes on in the background and and be careful that you're not being drawn into the War of Princes, because you know that those people use new nets as pawns and and disposable pawns even. Um, <coughs> so you don't want to be the one just being used uh, as uh, as a piece on a uh, on a chessboard, uh, being disposed of when you're lo- no longer needed. I think that could playing it more like that could probably enhance the, the kind of dread. Uh, and and the feeling of of being just very insignificant that I think can be very cool in a vampire game. Um, and as for as for the Gangrel, the uh, the old father or the all high is it?
0: Yeah, I think he calls himself the old the, high. The All
1: high. Yeah, I, I I agree that it would be a really cool idea to have uh, a few more, and especially to have someone up here in the north uh, that if nothing else, kind of like a contrast that you have this European high clans that are basically bickering with each other. And then you have this, this all high, this, this fourth generation badass who basically looks upon it and things like, yeah, I'm I'm not going to bother about that. It's that's beneath me. Like throw in a few of those that can kind of be neutral or independent, call it what you will. uh, But that, that, just to show to, to show the contrast between the kind of uh, the the bickering vampires and the kind of people that are too apathetic, or maybe they lost too much um, too much humanity or or uh, road conviction to to care about this kind of silly nonsense. They just want to sit alone in their uh, in their domain and brood, basically. Uh, and I think that sh- would be a really cool kind of. Uh, what do you call it? Not compromise, but but a, a distinction from yeah. uh, a contrast uh, from this political uh, kind of nonsense that that some vampires think is so interesting.
0: Yeah, um, and it, it yeah, I, it, getting getting something, you know, getting an idea of something different would mm. I think would be really nice, just so that that you can you can look at a different way of um of playing it. Now we end this chapter with a lexicon, which is a really nice thing to have. No further comments here. Yeah. It's just, you know, a lot of a lot of terms being thrown around, nice to have them defined. Yeah, exactly. A chapter- uh,
1: copy it and hand it out to new players so that they know what, what the heck you're talking about.
0: Yeah. So chapter 2 looks at the 13 clans, starting with the High clans. They spend some time talking about the justification these clans have for them being High clans. And while it makes sense to have these justifications, because it shows how the High clans um, think, I'm still not fully sold on the divide. I don't know that these justifications are are enough for them to have become High clans. But anyway... Um, we start with Clan Brugia, a personal favorite of mine. And I love how they have made it canon that the Brugia founder was a practical and pragmatic mm. person who was diabolized by a more emotional child because that's uh, that's my favorite sort of backstory for the uh, the Bruja. And as a Brugia fan, I like the presentation. Still hate the picture oh so much, like the presentation <laughs> yeah. of the clan.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, uh, and one thing that I really like that they done in this version uh, or edition is that they've they've changed and I would even say balanced some of the, the clan weaknesses uh, and more on that later but but what I really like is that uh, the reason for for the bruja having the the frenzy basically as their weakness uh, is uh, isn't because of, of some uh, vicious Bali infernal uh, Scheme or, or ritual or something, but it is actually Cain uh, cursing the first Diablerist, uh, which I, I think it makes a lot more sense that that the clan weaknesses comes from from a higher power, so to speak, rather than than it it being something that uh, that other vampires can inflict on each other. Because like, why haven't they done that to why haven't everyone done that to everyone else if they could have done things like that? Uh, but but yeah, I, I also really enjoy the Bruja and and I like what they've done and I like that they've started again. Uh, they kind of move from the whole uh, lofty, um, lofty idealistic warrior philosophers uh, into the more kind of modernites, rabble rousers uh, and. They did a similar thing in, in the in the first edition, but what I really like is is that they um, they kind of show that um, the the things that modern night brujas complain about the Ventrus, uh, the the dark ages Brugia were kind of responsible for themselves. So it's I, I do like the clash between the Ventru and the Bruja and and the fact that they aren't really that different from each other when you get down into the really nitty gritty and i i do like that kind of conflict i just think it's beautiful
0: yeah yeah you just don't ever say that they're as <laughs> yeah, similar exactly. as they actually are yeah. uh, and speaking of 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 clan weaknesses uh, with the next three clans the Cappadocian the La Sombra, and the Toreador the I, I think that's where the uh, there's some interesting things with with clan Cappadocian it's it's mainly just a bit of a nitpick because their clan weaknesses they look like corpses and um, that means that, that uh, the, the clan weakness says that the difficulty of all social roles are increased by one and I'm just thinking uh, why does that affect let's say charisma plus expression to write a stirring speech Yeah, because the people who are going to hear that speech are never going to see that the person who wrote it looks like a corpse. But that's a a minor nitpick. With Clan La Sombra, I like that they've um, changed it. So in addition to not having a weakness because of their ties to darkness, they now take an additional point of damage from sunlight because in the Middle Ages, how often is not having a reflection going to be a problem. Yeah, uh, exactly. it's it's it was a very weak one, and with Clan Clantureado, it's just that they have the same uh, curse, but the the backstory and explanation of why mm. Cain gave Clan Clantureado that curse, I think, adds a lot to to the clan. I I encourage people to read it just because I think it's really really cool.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Uh, I I do think it's a problem the way the the Tariadol weakness is phrased. That if they look at something, yeah. Uh, 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 a thing of beauty and it's like what is a thing of beauty it's it's gonna it, it could be completely arbitrary and in a way that could be cool because you could have this i don't know this completely bestial to who thinks that that the uh the art of war or or actually fighting a battle is a thing of beauty and like oh look at the way that might slice the head off that poor innocent peasant or or whatever uh, but <laughs> I, I think that, or at least if if I was going to play a teriador, I would talk to my um, my storyteller and kind of define what my character would consider a thing of beauty, uh, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and so, so so kind of figure out so that it makes sense. Because like if if you have just just take modern art for example, like some of it is literally just a line and a dot on a canvas. And that can be really cool. But if you're a 3,000-year-old Toreador who has seen the beauty of the painted marble uh, sculptures of of Parthenon in Athens, then I don't think that just a a line and a dot on a canvas would have the same kind of effect as uh, a beautifully carved marble statue, for example. Um, But... Again, it's it, it's not necessarily something uh, negative, but I, I would kind of talk with my storyteller to figure out what, what makes sense. Um, yeah. As, as for the La Sombra, I, I really like them in this edition, and, and I kind of touched upon it previously, but I, I really do like that uh, you, you have the whole... Uh, they, they have their uh, Amiki Noctis kind of um, in-clan i don't know if you should call it a sect or a club or a cult or or just a bunch of of people but i, I really like the 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 kind of clash uh between their their earthly allegiances like uh like um a lot of them are in in uh, uh, on the iberian peninsula so you have the uh, the muslim la sombra uh who kind of support the the muslims during the war between the uh, the christians and the muslims uh and they could set that aside to sit down at the same table as their Christian clan members and, and kind of decide, kind of behind the scenes, what they should do uh, about the whole mortal affair things. So I do like the fact that they focus so much on, on clan politics and, and how that affects their uh, actions when it comes to their interaction with the mortal society. Uh, it's it, it's yeah. a really interesting thing that that they do yeah
0: exactly uh, so the last two of the high clans we have clan sumish they haven't changed they're, saying they're still yeah. w- still the same wonderful flesh shaping tyrants and then clan Ventru; they are your favorite so uh, all <laughs> oh, I've what? got to say here is that of all the clan portraits i like theirs the best
1: yeah well it, they're they're one of my favorites uh, as as for the portraits uh, i i agree he, he looks like he's Actually, wearing some kind of armor that would be historical. Um, the leg armor again, are a few centuries too early, and and it doesn't really make sense because he's, he's wearing some kind of chainmail uh, shirt, and then he has this fancy, uh, this fancy metal leg armor that isn't just chainmail. Uh, and like, if if you wanted to protect just something with plate then it would make more sense to uh to put it on your or on your upper body because that's where all of your important organs are and yeah sure he is mm-hmm. a vampire so he doesn't care about his kidneys but he still has a heart uh but but yeah i i uh that, that's just neat, neat speaking but but yeah i i do like the ventru, and i Again, I do like the fact that they are so similar to the Bruja, even though no one wants to admit it. Least of all <laughs> um, And and I, I I think it's really interesting that uh, again they they're starting to show what kind of uh, what kind of clan they are in the modern nights with them focusing more on kind of uh, mortal guilds and and influencing the not just the nobility but starting to realize that hey money that's probably gonna be a really cool thing in the next couple of centuries. Let, let's focus on that.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's funny, given how much the Ventru are portrayed often as staunch conservatives, mm. they are one of the most modernistic mm. clans being portrayed here yeah. because they've realized just what they can get out of the changes in mortal yeah. society. So um, we then move on to the low clans, which includes a section on how the Salubri were a high clan and then got eaten by the Tremere, yeah. who are a low clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we also have a mention of the various bloodlines, the Bali, Libon, Lamia, Lianen, and Gargoyles. They're not covered in this book, which I think makes fine sense. You know, you have to limit word count. And also, this is the kind of thing that nobody's going to complain is going to be in a later book. Um, with the... Um, With the low clans, one of the things they've done really well is with some of the more problematic clans like Clan Asamite and uh, the Settites, they've really done their best to get away from the, um, in many cases, racist stereotype. There is no mention in uh, the um, Ravnos of, quote-unquote, gypsies. The Clan Asamite are noted as referring to themselves as the Banu Hakim Mm -hmm. uh, and it being the vampires of europe that call them assamites and also love that they include all three castes in their description yeah. and they mention how the assamites see themselves as cain's judges so they're not just the mercenary assassins they were in earlier editions that's the the kind of assamite you see further um into europe but on on the borderlands and in their in the lands that the assamites are strong they're they're not just assassins and mercenaries they're they're still trying to hold on to this ideal of the judges of Cain which is a take on them that i've I've really loved yeah um so that's that's really good yeah i
1: I completely agree that that they've basically fixed especially the Asimites. uh and and I do like the kind of the the clash between the the high and the low clans how they described it and and um the the, the kind of N- not infighting, but but uh, the conflict between the two um, between the two. Uh, I also really like that that they more or less gotten rid of the Bali because they were never a favorite of mine. Uh, <laughs> and I, again, they're they're kind of too high fantasy and 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 almost silly with the whole oh let's worship demons and the devil and and whatever. Um, as as for the Asmites, yeah, I, I completely agree that they 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 fixed them. Um, the the same kind of goes for the followers of Set that they're not just the whole uh, hey kids you want to buy drugs kind of things that, <laughs> that they were yeah uh, I I do think that there there's still some things that are a bit problematic with them in in the way that they're, they're they're kind of too stereotypical Egyptian kind of let's let's worship our Egyptian god kind of thing but. Considering when uh, this book was written, I think it's it's a really good job that they made. Of course, you can always do improvements, but I I really like what they've done to the to the setites as well. So yeah, good good job on that.
0: Yeah, the the low clans uh, contain some of the clans the clans that come with a lot of baggage. Mm. The Asamites, the followers of Set, uh, the Ravnos, even the Malkavians—they yeah. are some of the clans that. If if you want to maintain at least some consistency with how they once were, it, it takes a lot of work to get rid of all the um, of all the unfortunate stereotypes yeah. that have a connection to real world culture, and it's something that I think you see a lot when people are making modern day vampire LARPs. Um, they one of the things that they really work on is explaining how you can take these clans and portray them in a way that is not just negative cultural stereotypes, yeah, yeah. which is something that I really appreciate. And it's something that, you know, we'll, we'll see as the books progress, we'll see an, an advancement in the take on them. Uh, as for the rest of them, Clan Gangrel, they haven't changed much. Yeah, and this is still, yeah, still quite problematic for long-term play. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. They still have that, that crappy uh, <laughs> weakness. Um, my my only I, I'm on my list of, of clans and and like notes on uh, on the different clans the the notes on gangrel just says yes because <laughs> yeah they're, exactly. they're the gangrel the gangrel are gonna gangrel uh, we heard you like yeah. the gangrel in your gangrel so we put some gangrel in your gangrel uh, but but yeah. yeah they they've been the same as as always um, Malcavians, uh, also one of my favorite clans. I, I really do like them. Um, for uh, the, the clan picture, though, I don't really like that much. It it shows. I'm assuming it's supposed to be some kind of mad monk or cleric. Uh,
0: it's supposed to be Anatole, supposed actually. To be
1: Anatole. holy shit! He needs yeah, to make the uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> all of all of the clan pictures are supposed to be the um. The um, uh, sort of signature character for that clan. So the Malkavian clan picture is supposed to be Anatole. The Tsumish clan picture is supposed to be uh, Vukos, and so on and so forth. Oh, so that okay. is actually supposed to be Anatole. Yeah, okay. And yes, he does need a makeover. Yeah,
1: but an interesting thing, though, just just from uh, going back to one of our earlier side quests when we talked about uh, uh, what kind of weapons would make sense for for vampires. He he does have a sword. Uh, a very yeah, fantasy. Kind of sword, but, but still, but <laughs> it it kind of makes sense for vampires to have it because if if you're fighting uh, like arrows and spears are not going to be that useful against uh, vampires, uh, and uh, and so so the people that you're going to fight is probably going to be people like uh, I mean immortal people, uh, and so a, a sword that you can easily just. Chop through uh, unarmored opponents is probably going to be quite useful. Um,
0: yeah, exactly. But,
1: but yeah, I um, y- you mentioned that that uh, the Malkavian could also be problematic, and I'm, I'm assuming that you're referring to mental illness
0: or men- mental. Yeah, health. the way that mental illness gets gets handled. I mean, with with in the here they sort of lean into how mental illness was viewed yeah. in the Middle Ages, which it has its own problems, but at the same time, I like that they're they're taking a bit of a a medieval look at it, and they lean into the whole seers and oracle things, Mm -hmm. where there was a tendency in the Middle Ages, if if madness wasn't the result of demonic possession, then it was usually seen as more of a a holy thing, and certainly uh, among um, non-Christian cultures, but also in Christian cultures, there was this whole idea of divine madness, so I, I... I can see what they're going for, and I, I think it's it's a good way to go. But on the other hand, I can certainly also see why some people would think it a bit problematic. But it's it's a balancing act, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. There there are some uh, some nuances to to what kind of um, uh, to to what the uh, people in in Europe during the Middle Ages thought or medieval times thought about. Uh, mental illness or, or insanity—they—they they make a difference between—and—and uh, and this is—I'm—I'm I'm quoting from from a text now. Being a natural-born idiot and being a lunatic, <laughs> uh, and the the latter being uh, applied to those who who had like periods of, of mental disorder—and—and uh, and it of course referred to to uh, the idea that. That your your mental health or mental condition could be influenced by by the moon, uh, moon in Latin being luna, so that's where the yeah. word lunatic comes from. Uh, and and you had, for example, you had the, the dancing mania in the Middle Ages, where where people um, uh, just started dancing and or or it was interpreted as dance. It was probably some kind of seizures. Uh, and and some of it, one interpretation of it was that it was uh, due to moldy bread that infected a lot of people. So people would eat from um, eat bread being made from uh, from flour being milled in the same mill, uh, and and if the mill had been infected with some kind of mold or mildew, then it it, it could probably affect a lot of people. Uh, so but yeah, there there are. There are a lot of nuances to, to medieval or the, the view of, of insanity in medieval times um i i, I do like uh, the Malcavans being kind of seen as the visionaries and and um and seers and being kind of as you mentioned that that um, mental illness and, and visions could be attributed to uh to holy intervention um i i do think it's it's a bit boring that they focus just on that because there are so many much more that you can do with it than other things uh because if like come on you you need malkavians that do other things besides just being prophets and oracles and and things like that so i, I would love to see them giving a few more options than just the the crazy prophet kind of deal um yeah. and and another thing that I don't like is that now they have dementation instead of, of uh, instead of uh, dominate and I I prefer Malkavians with dominate because that just makes them so much more terrifying
0: mm. oh, that is uh, actually um, one area where we disagree <laughs> because I'm a huge fan of dementation. But that's that is a topic for a lengthy discussion. Yeah. I think. Um, I think. I mean, it could be an interesting discussion. Things like uh, various uh, clan disciplines and and what we think about them and, and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, because it's it's something that that you know affects how how they are are played. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, with the last two, we have Clan Nosferatu. They haven't changed at all. But I will give the book bonus points for mentioning that far from all cities will have underground sewers <laughs> yeah. for them to hide in. Uh, The 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 whole oh and uh, here we are in northern Germany and uh, sitting in the open cesspit is the local Nosferatu. Uh, Don't tell him that everyone can see him. He's not underground. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just he's
1: he's a bit uh, yeah, he's a bit touchy about that subject.
0: Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we have the tremere, and they're the same as they've they've always been, and I assume that you still dislike yeah, them. Yeah, they're
1: they're still kind of mad. <laughs> uh, I, I speaking of the Nosferatu, though, I I really do like the um, the illustration for it because it shows this kind of um, creepy, really ugly kind of leprous uh, Nosferatu character with a rat on his shoulder, but he's wearing some really really fancy robes. Uh, oh yeah, and I I. I would love like to have a character, an Nosferatu character who has some kind of position in um, in in the Prince court, perhaps even being the prince of a city themselves, uh, and just 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 have this this complete clash between this completely horrible and and repulsive. Person, but being dressed in the finest silks and embroidered clothes, and 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 just to to show that that this is a character that still cares about well, not their not their appearance because that's kind of hard, but the, but their presentation, and and to show just how horrifying they can be, even though like it's it's the old saying you can't polish a turd, and it's the same like you can't you can't dress up a nosferatu to be anything but a nosferatu uh, but but yeah I, I still like the fact that they they gave the nosferatu something other than just tattered robes or anything like that um,
0: yeah exactly this is one of the times where they where they break with the stereotypes and i think that's something that that would be nice um, especially because this is the core book so you you give some stereotypes but then you also give examples of how you can break them yeah. which is a really nice thing so people don't get caught in the stereotypes yeah.
1: Uh, and, and also just touching upon the Ravnos and and we mentioned them bre- uh, previously but uh, the I think it was actually the last time we tried to record this episode. you you had an interesting idea about their uh, the clan weakness that that you could tie it to one of the seven deadly sins, uh, which I, I think is a really cool idea and to uh, because again they they have this kind of vice that they have to, uh, there they have to be addicted to uh, which is really problematic because oftentimes you just got to get a bunch of, of
0: kleptomaniacs and uh... But yeah, it's it's like you mentioned with the with the Tereador. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a very broad and, and difficult uh, to pin down. And I just think with the focus that this core book has on Christian Europe, it would make sense to tie it to the seven deadly yeah. sins. And then you can have Christian uh, Ravnos who say, yes, well, I am cursed with one of the deadly sins. And you can have non-Christian Ravnos trying to figure out why this is tied to a Christian belief and trying yeah. to explain that. Oh no! This is some central cosmic principle that the Christians have just stumbled upon. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That, that's a really interesting take on it, actually. Uh, and I'm I'm also thinking again, like with the Toriador, that that talk to your storyteller about how yes. you define your vice, uh, and and I also think from a story storyteller perspective, I think it would be an interesting idea if um, if it's not like if the, the device you have isn't set in stone, like if, if let's take a kleptomaniac, for example, that, that you are compelled to steal things, uh, that it, it would be nice if it wasn't always like, yeah, you have to steal the most uh, expensive thing in the room, but kind of like you you get to roll, uh, I don't know, self-control or uh, um, willpower or whatever. And, and if you get... A lot of successes. Perhaps you just uh, like, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna steal this carrot or this this spoon because no one's gonna miss it. But if you fail spectacularly, you kind of like you feel that you want to uh, take something really important, and and you can do the same with basically every vice or or sin. Like if if you're a compulsive compulsive liar, then perhaps uh, you you start off or in in some situations. You just have to tell uh, white lies or, or insignificant lies, but when it comes to a, to uh, other more perhaps more stressful situations, then then you kind of have to tell the big lies, uh, and so be, because that that allows for more nuanced and and uh, uh, more nuanced uh, style of, of playing, uh, which which also I think would be at least for me if I would have played a Ravnos would would be a bit more interesting and fun uh, be- because I can kind of adapt to the situation and do what makes more sense or wor- what's more interesting rather than mm. like having that. Yeah. I always have to tell a lie because that's going to be boring really quick.
0: Yeah, exactly. If, if anyone's ever played a, um, a puka in uh, changeling, the dreaming, they will know how utterly annoying it can get after a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so t- chapter three is about roads, and much of what they've done here I absolutely love. They have divided the roads into five main roads. Beast, heaven, humanity, kings, and sin. Each road then has has diverging paths that one can follow, but they don't have to. Uh, you have, for example, chivalry for kings. You have devil for sin. Uh, we don't get rules for them. They they come later, but we get an idea of, of what they are, and it's just something that I think is really, really uh great they present a few other minor roads like the road of blood of night uh, bones etc they don't give ro- rules for them and i would have liked rules for them but i don't see that's that big of a problem and even bigger change however is how they present the roads as almost analogous to mortal religion with each road having priests and rituals and prayers and so on and followers of a road having a community and kinship kinship that are oftentimes more important than, cl- than clans I like most of the ideas but I think some of it gets taken a bit too far. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you
1: want to start or should I on on that part?
0: Uh, I mean if, if if you start and I'll I'll I have I've said most of what I want. I have a few more comments but let's hear what yeah, you have to yeah, say about just all of this.
1: Whenever. Well, I I do like the fact that they've expanded on the idea of, of roads. Um, but what, what I'm thinking about is it like is it supposed to be an actual religion or or a philosophy uh because that can make quite a distinction and it's uh and i'm not really sure which which of those roads i would want to walk down on pun intended but but also if (laughs) if you present it as an actual religion then then you're gonna have a bunch of problems because first of all like are there mortal followers of, of the different roads? Like, I could definitely see, uh, yeah. well, most of them basically uh, could probably attract mortal followers. And and also, uh, uh, many of the clans are described as them basically courting uh, their would-be uh, children to, to be embraced. So that, like... When when do you talk to your children about about the roads of uh, <laughs> like like is it because it, it, it especially the the clans that really court um, the mortals for years and, and especially if you ghoul them for a few decades beforehand like do you like sit down and and talk to your uh, would be child about the road of heavens or the road of kings. Uh, and and what happens if if they don't care about that and uh, so so you have that kind of more I don't know uh, more more philosophical debate on on how roads would actually work if they should be considered um, religions but then if if they're gonna be, uh, a religion then then you need organization because that's that's basically one of the yeah. criteria for a religion and and they talk about they they do talk about wandering priests of the different roads which I don't have a problem with because that kind of makes sense even if it's just a philosophy you could have like the, the wandering scholar or the local scholar yeah. who, who knows about stuff um, but then they talk about excommunication.
0: And, exactly, and, and yeah. the
1: reason that the the Catholic Church could excommunicate people uh, was because it was a huge organization, it was a huge bu- bureaucracy, and people cared about what they were saying. Uh, unless you're a Holy Roman Emperor who got excommunicated like three or four times, but then you made penance and then everything <laughs> was fine, at least for a while. But But still, it's like, if, if you are on the road of kings and you sit at a court of love in Paris, are you going to care about what what a someone down in Italy says about you? And like, oh, hey, sire, lord, uh, the, the, the prince of Venice excommunicated you. And you're going to be like, who? And what are they going to like? Why do I care? Um, so I do think that's a bit problematic, if nothing else, from just a practical point of view.
0: Yeah, exactly. How how the hell do road followers communicate, especially that much? Because the way that um, the the most organized religion of the area, Catholicism, communicated was you disseminated it from uh, up high, from the the curia, from from the Pope down to the archbishops, to the bishops, to the individual priests, and so on. But vampires, they don't travel very much, and they don't have that much of a network, so. Let's say a, a follower of the Road of Kings decides, screw the Road of Kings, I'm going with humanity and yeah. makes a bold statement about that somewhere in Genoa and he gets excommunicated and he flees and he ends up in Scotland. How are followers of the Road of Kings going to know that he was excommunicated I mean, is is the, the, the leader of the Road of Kings in Genoa going to write a million letters to all the, the <laughs> yeah, people exactly. that he know? And how does he know them in, in other places? Yeah. Uh, and speaking of, of the whole priest thing, how many positions does the average domain have? Because <laughs> yeah, this yeah. basically, this, this sets it up so that every road will have in a major domain uh, a, an ashen priest dedicated yeah. to that road you have five main roads and mm-hmm. we've already discussed that there are a bunch of other uh positions so it ends up with every goddamn character yeah. uh in, in, a, in an area get you get a title <laughs> yes exactly um so like i love i love what they've done with this focus on on the roads and I love how they've they've sort of taken the most common roads made them into each of them into an umbrella where there are are paths underneath yep. them so that if you don't want to follow the main road, then you can you can walk a path that, that fits yours better. Uh, a, a great example is the road of chivalry under kings, where instead of focusing on you being the ruler, you focus on serving yep. a proper ruler. Yep. So I think that's really, really cool. But once again, because I think they're trying to create this absolute mirror of mortal society they've said mortal society has this very structured very organized religion so we are going to turn the roads into a very structured very organized religion and from the way that we know vampire society works in the middle ages it it just doesn't really fit there's something there that that just doesn't click
1: yeah and and again from kind of a gaming perspective i I like it when things aren't codified in, like, like I I don't think, uh, or or rather uh, it's it's obvious that that vampires aren't talking about like yeah I'm gonna use my level three celerity or or dominate four on someone like they 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 just use their powers and and it's yeah. kind of a the the names for. A lot of the powers is just just a meta thing for for us as players to handle things, and and I think that uh, or at least for me it would be a lot more interesting and, and uh, make it open up for a lot more types of play if if it wasn't as defined in the like in the actual setting like yeah you're on the road of kings. And I'm probably also because, but but I'm more focused on on serving. But it's still the same kind of philosophy. So from from a strict rule perspective, you would be on the road of kings, and I would be on road road of chivalry. But in the game, since none of us are playing these uh, like theological scholars, we don't really care about the difference. We're like, yeah, we yeah. we have the same kind of beliefs. But we differ in the way we practice them. Um, and, and I think that's often a lot more interesting um, rather than just having these this strict like differences and this is this and this is that, uh, because it, I, I think it opens up for, for a lot of strange things that, that just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. Um, so unless you have anything more to say, that was the first three chapters. Well, um, yeah, well, I, I
1: do have a lot more things to say. on, on yeah, the, but, well, but... The, the different roads. Um, I uh, the, the, there are some interesting things. Uh, we, we touched upon the uh, the road of kings a bit, which which I uh, I like, and and again, kind of as it is with with Brugge and Ventru. If you look at how the road of kings and the road of the beasts are described, they, again, they aren't really that different from each other uh, in, in the kind of basic philosophy. It's, it's just more what you do with it. Being, being like a ruler and having the kind of um, defending my honor and challenges, not going uh, unanswered is, is basically a tenet in, in both of those. Um, I I do like what they've done with with the road of humanity because it's it's basically medieval hippies, uh, but <laughs> it, it could also be because it's like yeah humans are humans are our future man, uh, but yeah. but it could also work for uh, and be fun for kind of like an enlightened scholar like oh holy shit the the humans actually are our future and because they have reasoning and they can be out in the daylight and whatever, um w- one thing that is a bit weird though is that the the road of of heaven on uh because they're supposed to be the ones that actually um adhere to to christianity and and god being um god being god and everything uh but on their hierarchy of sins uh on on score three uh they say that no wait uh, just oh sorry I was looking at the wrong one uh, yeah they're on, <laughs> on uh, the hierarchy of sins uh, against heaven uh, they have allowing a crime or major sin to go unpunished and as a rationale for that it says that vengeance is mine saith the Lord and last time I checked vampires aren't the Lord so so you do have a bit of like what were they thinking uh, I don't know it it.
0: Yeah, well, uh, it's it's uh, it's kind of fun because we, we often, uh, or not often, but I you sometimes see Christians making even that um, uh, statement today mm-hmm. with, well, the reason that I am doing this is because uh, I want to uh, avenge, and vengeance is mine, saying that, all, Lord, I suppose with the vampires, it's because some of them, their approach to the road of, of heaven is that they are the instruments of God it's somehow. Oh, but yeah, yeah it, it is a bit of a... A flimsy, uh, flimsy excuse. Um, so um, I, I, we'll, we'll get to um, the road yeah. books later. So we'll see if they, if they come up with some yeah. good explanations but for that. Yeah, in it's, the, uh, it's an interesting road of heaven books.
1: Uh, yeah. because again, even, even today, there are a lot of of people who proclaim themselves being of a certain religion and and doing things that that other members of said religion probably wouldn't agree with and justifying it, but. By, by saying that I'm doing the Lord's work. So, yeah, that's that's a good point, actually.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, we obviously can't judge the whole book, but we can talk a little bit about these first three chapters. And as for historical information, well, there aren't much. What there is is good, but I am disappointed at how little real-world info there is. That, that's just my, my take on that. I'm disappointed with the amount, not with what they actually give us. Yeah,
1: I I agree with it. Uh, again, I I had my my little nitpick with with the fact that they use uh, I think it's 14th or 15th century woodcutting when they actually do have a bunch of really cool uh, 13th century uh, illustrations that they could have used as as inspiration instead. Uh, but yeah. but except for that, yeah, I do like it. I I'm checking the the map to see if if there's something. Uh, that isn't doesn't really make sense, but yeah, there's there's nothing. Again, it's, it's the maps are just an overview, so uh, use them how you want them, and and see them more as a guideline. Um,
0: yeah, exactly um for a core book i think this does a wonderful job of introducing the Canite world and vampiric society the clans and the roads um as mentioned i would have preferred a more narrow focus than the war of princes mm-hmm. and i think they went a little too mirroring religion when it comes to the road and indeed mirroring human society in general with the war of princes and the the sort of vampiric domains standing in for human nations and their wars and High and low clan standing in for feudalism. Um, but overall, as a game book, especially a core book, which is supposed to introduce new players and indeed a new storyteller to the game, I think these chapters are are well done, though you uh, you had some comments uh, that uh, I think were, were really good about repetition and stuff like that. Yeah, and,
1: and <laughs> let's not do the same mistake and repeat ourselves too much. But, <laughs> but again, yeah. I, I just feel that if... They, they should have edited a bit more and changed the layout so that, that things are in a different order, because a lot of the things that you actually do have to trudge through is interesting or, or kind of useful, but it's in the wrong order.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so some few things that might could have been better, but in general, you know, good, good work. And with that, welcome to season two of the World of Dark Ages podcast. You can find us on Facebook, on Discord, and we have a Patreon. A big thanks to all our listeners, both those who have returned and new ones. We will be back in two weeks with the second episode dedicated to the core book. And with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off?
1: Well, I I just want to thank... All our listeners and uh, especially our our patrons. Uh, I'm gonna see if I can uh, get some kind of, of special episode up, uh, probably perhaps as a Christmas present. I don't want to make any promises, but p- probably around that time. Uh, and I, I just again just want to thank all of our listeners and and those who spread the word uh, of of the podcast. Uh, we've we've we have over two hundred. Uh, followers on Facebook, which is, is just really, really cool. Uh, we're almost up to 50 episodes, which is also really, really cool. And I I think it's fantastic that we have all of you uh, with us on this journey. And let's make it... Are, are we going to make it to 50 more episodes? Is there enough books for that? Or, or should do we need to do side quests?
0: Well, if, if we get some side quests, which we are planning uh, some side quests, mm-hmm. then... Once we've finished with uh, season three, I'm thinking we should be able to hit a hundred episodes. So fingers crossed yeah. for that.
1: Yeah, and and we do have some ideas for for when we get like ten and twenty uh, patron followers as well. Uh, so if if that's something you're interested in, or perhaps you know someone who's interesting in that, uh, then then just join up. Otherwise, you we we still love you for listening to our silly little podcast.
0: Yes, that we do, and so. It is goodbye from me, Jacob.
1: And from me, Peter.
0: Farewell and see you next time.
1: Bye.